Okay, still recording. And we're going to say welcome to the Love of Learning Podcast. Welcome to the Love of Learning Podcast. Where we bring the fun and discovery of Kids Quest Children's Museum right into your own home. I'm your host, Ali Sherotis. This episode is all about engineering. In our full Steam Ahead series, exploring science, technology, engineering, art, and math. Engineering is basically applying other STEM fields to solve a problem. It's the use of materials to design and craft and build. Kids are natural-born engineers who are capable of building creations beyond what our adult minds often give them credit for. Imagine being in an aisle at a toy store. You pick up one of the boxes on the shelf, turn it over, and there's a big black and orange caution label that says, Warning! Compartmentalization of experience. Commercially produced plastic toys create a narrowed interaction expectation on the part of the child. The impossibly clean lines and limited play modes establish boundaries that your child will quickly adapt to and accept. This mode of limited quote-unquote play will affect how your child approaches problem-solving and undermine their natural curiosity. Okay, so you're probably not ever going to encounter a label like that on an actual product. But the label does exist. It's one of a three-part satirical series designed by Gaver Tully and published in Make Magazine in 2006. The previous year, Tully kind of accidentally stumbled into starting an engineering-based summer camp in his own backyard. What happens when you give kids real tools and full creative control over their own builds? Well, the results are pretty incredible. There's a, a story there that I, I never tire of telling, which is that when I was in my early 30s, my friends were having children. And as those children grew up, I noticed that my friends weren't letting their children do the kinds of things that I had done as a child or that I had done with them. They somehow looked back at this very formative experience of our childhood as Our parents had no idea what they were doing. That was so risky. We're lucky we survived. And I felt like part of why we as a group had been so successful in life was that we'd had these shared formative experiences exploring the world on our own terms. I sort of got up on a soapbox at a Christmas dinner party and and I said, you know, it's getting to the point where someone should start a summer camp where parents can just drop off their kids. We won't tell anybody what goes on at the camp, but basically we'll be letting them run around in the woods and build things. And by the end of the night, I had five kids signed up for this summer camp and had somehow promised that I would run a week of overnight summer camp here at my house (laughs) uh, south of San Francisco. Luckily, my wife was at the table at the time, and, and we were all kind of caught up in the thrill of it. A remarkable and unexpected thing happened, which was that I followed through on that idea and I started the camp and I decided somehow that eight was the proper number. So I got some kids by placing a little ad in Make Magazine and invited people to send me their children and they did. And it was remarkable to me because I wasn't known in as a public figure at that point. I was under the radar working as a software architect. Tully took the amazing results of what he saw happening at Tinkering School and expanded the concept into a K-12 school in San Francisco called Brightworks. He's also an author, 
His book is called 50 Dangerous Things You Should Let Your Children Do. And he speaks internationally about children, education, risk, and power tools. The philosophy of Tinkering School is so similar to the way we think about play at KidsQuest. Kids learn best through experience. The camp empowers tinkerers with tools, autonomy, and space, and has resulted in some unbelievable projects. like this 10-foot-long roller coaster track designed and built by seven-year-olds at the very first summer of camp. That first week of camp with those eight kids living here at the house, we worked so hard. Like That was the first real eye-opener for me was the realization that Culturally, we underestimated the capacity of children to apply themselves to a problem. And I think that perception comes from the experience that parents have of trying to force their children to do homework or something like that. We see that these extrinsically motivated activities are very hard to get them to concentrate and put their full effort to. What I discovered and what changed my whole perception of childhood was that If we're in it together, if we're really collaborating and working together on the same problem, they will work as long and hard as an adult. And uh, we would put in 10 and 12 hour days that first week. That became the habit at Tinkering School and got me thinking that if we underestimate them in these capacities, what other capacities do we underestimate? And that's basically the beginning of my transition from being someone who worked in technology to someone who worked in education. Sounds like your experience as a tinker, as a young person, possibly impacted the person that you turned into as an adult. What would you say, like the long-term effects of (laughs) of being allowed to be in a space where you can build big things and mess up and start over? I think, you know, after 15 years of, of doing the camp now and going, we see real hard evidence that tinkering school develops a kind of problem-solving tenacity. If your first attempt at it isn't working, that's because you didn't understand the problem yet. And that carries through into all the other aspects of problem-solving in our lives. This kind of attitude that like, all right, I learned something from trying it that way. What can I look at at that failure? What can I learn from that failure? And then how do I figure out what to do next? Well, if we approach all of setbacks in our lives that way, where like, okay, that didn't work. Let me think on this for a minute, you know, kind of look at the evidence that's laid out in front of us, see if I can come up with another way. Then we destigmatize the concept of failure. They're incredibly resilient. They're in fact, unstoppable. <laughs> So many of my experiences at the Children's Museum watching a group of children, there's a variety of ages and abilities, and they start working on one problem, and then that challenge really morphs, and then it takes on this whole life of its own. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that's exactly right, is that they don't calibrate their own self-challenges the way that we do as adults, right? They'll they'll pick a destination that uh, impossible reach and then be completely satisfied as they make progress towards it, getting to some destination that might've been more appropriate as initial definition, but is a perfectly valid and and joyful place to be, right? And 
as the adult in the environment, I look at the work and the, the progress that was made. And I go, that was a great week. We didn't build a rocket ship to Mars, but this treehouse that we built is amazing and, and just as valid as that other sort of narrative. The same I find is true when we look at students working in the school is it's so easy for us to project meaningful adult milestones onto children's work when in reality, they'll self-challenge continuously if we let them. They'll take on the next hardest thing or the too hard thing and then learn to calibrate how much they take on. One of the things that I love about Tinkering School is how every single session that I work with kids, we find that they're constantly kind of moving those goalposts around. And it doesn't take them long in working with us to realize that like, we're not that married to the goal we defined at the beginning. As long as you're proposing a, a great goal, we'll go along with it. You have seen millions of projects at this point, but is there one that really sticks out in your mind as like a great example of starting with one challenge and then it kind of morphs into something else? Yeah, yeah. You know, sometimes we'll put provocation in the environment to sort of seed their projects. And in this case, this was a number of years ago, but we put a zip line in the warehouse where we were doing all our builds. And we thought that they were going to make like a gondola and, you know, sort of ride down the zip line. And what they made was this anime extravaganza with this flying dragon and a storyline and all of these props that you fly past. And the props are animated by kids who are operating levers and pulling on ropes. And so there was this very brief action-packed movie that happens where you're the hero riding the dragon's back. That's what it was. And, you know, if we had set that out to begin with for the week, we never would have had the buy-in from the students to, to build something like that. But because it emerged from a conversation of, does it just have to be a gondola or can we do something else? And they, they riff and spin and they bite off more than they can chew and, and they get there anyway. I never want to ride a gondola again. I would much prefer <laughs> to ride a dragon flying across <laughs> the yeah. sky. One of the kids at camp actually asked a question. She was like, we ride in this gondola up at the ski lift every winter, and it just looks like this white blob hanging off the cable. And I asked her, I said, well, what, you know, what do you think it could look like? She thinks for a minute and she says, well, it could be a UFO. It could have swirling lights. It could have little round portholes, you know, and, and she just starts riffing on like all the positive benefits of reframing your gondola ride as being kidnapped by aliens. Many of our listeners who are familiar with Kids Quest probably have exciting memories from our tool time program in the Recycle Rebuild classroom. Our goal was to get as many real tools in as many small hands as possible. And at first that might give some adults reason to pause. You're really about to let my six-year-old use that handsaw? And the answer is yes. With proper safety precautions and adult guidance, your six-year-old is definitely going to be able to use a handsaw. You know, I talk to a lot of parents about risk and, and danger and children's impulse for self-preservation, but also lack of impulse control. At our overnight camp, we're often the first adult to hand this child a knife and expect them to use it responsibly. And so we've developed a fairly succinct process for getting that child ready to hold their first knife. Just a little bit of training. The moment where we hand it off, 
we sort of sit with them for a minute, watch them start whittling a stick and, you know, and then we turn our complete attention to someone else. You watch the child's face. I've seen it dozens of times myself. They look at the back of the adult's head and they're like, wait, what? You're going to leave me here with this sharp thing? And then there's a kind of like, look down at the knife in their hands and you suddenly see them go like, yeah, okay, I've got this, you know, and then they start doing it. We don't never have to use a Band-Aid. Occasionally we do use Band-Aids, but also we've never have a kid drop the knife because they cut themselves and then never pick it up again. It has to do with how we frame those incidents, both for ourselves as the adults in the environment and how, this, how the child does. And one of the ways that we get there is by always, instead of going like, oh my God, what have you done? And making a big deal out of it, you respond instead with, oh, looks like you're cut yourself. Can you just put a little pressure on that for a second? Now, how do you think that happened? Oh, you were, you, you were caught on a knot and the knife got stuck and you just for, forced it. Like, how can we keep this from happening again? Oh, maybe work around the knot or take a little smaller bite at the knot. Okay, great. Should we go get a Band-Aid or let's take a look? Has it stopped bleeding? Yeah, let's go get a Band-Aid. You know, we can normalize these incidents as part of progress and we can also talk to the child the same way that we would anybody else. What I say to parents who are kind of nervous about this is that you're working with your own five-year-old, six-year-old daughter. Think of the 20-year-old they become. Let's help them build a fundamental skill of what it means to be a competent and capable adult. Let's learn to recognize and mitigate risk. Not to avoid all risk, but to measure it and, and be sensible about it. Adults play a very important role in Tinkering School's philosophy of encouraging kids to build big and bold. Tully refers to himself and his team as collaborators. They're there to help steer a project to completion and to ask open-ended questions that challenge and test the theories kids are developing through their exploration. We want to build on that desire, on that curiosity, into an internal sense that they can change the world. We don't know how they will apply these things they're learning through these little experiences. But what we do know is that the cumulative experience of having heard yes more than no is that they approach the world more positively. They approach the world as something where they can make a difference, where they can make a change. And that ability starts with practice when they're kindergartners you know, and younger being around adults who express a trust in them as people who can change the world. You know, whether it's stacking up those rocks that might pinch their fingers, learning to use a knife that they might get a few cuts from before they get good at it. All of those things should be seen as progress towards competent, capable, positive change makers. Thank you so much to Gaver Tully for taking the time to chat with me for this episode. I definitely encourage you to check out the Tinkering School website, www.tinkeringschool.com, where you can find some videos of the truly remarkable builds the campers have created. They also have some training resources for educators and online opportunities for students. I will include links to their website and for his book, 50 Dangerous Things You Should Let Your Children Do. One of the 50 things is flatten a penny on the railroad tracks. I still have some coins that I smashed on some railroad tracks as a kid. And if you haven't done it, it's so much fun. Okay, get ready for today's audio postcard, coming to you from Orcas Island, Washington. 
This is a body of water that's really special to the Pacific Northwest. The Salish Sea is an inland sea encompassing Puget Sound, the San Juan Islands, and the waters off of Vancouver, British Columbia. Its name pays tribute to the first inhabitants of the region, the Coast Salish. This rich and vibrant ecosystem is home to 37 species of mammals, 172 species of birds, 253 species of fish, and humans, of course. Nearly 8 million people make this region their home today. The Sea Dog Society, based on Orcas Island, is doing some incredible research and conservation work to ensure the health of the Salish Sea for generations to come. My name is Mira Castle, and I am the Education Coordinator for Sea Dog Society. We work to ensure the health of wildlife and their ecosystems. So we are funding science and doing science and also involved in interpreting that science. In other words, making it something that families and our political leaders can understand and then they can make decisions based on that science. So we've got the Junior Sea Doctors. Kids can sign up. They take this little quiz on our juniorseadoctors.org website. They are invited to go ahead and register and it's free. They will get a welcome note in the mail and they'll get a membership card they can put their name on so they can show people they are official junior sea doctors. And then they get a wildlife ID guide for the Salish Sea. And it's this multi-fold brochure that is laminated. They can take it to the beach, get it wet, and they can be experts at the seashore and show their parents and their friends and really be kind of like nature detectives too. So it's super fun. And it's not just for kids. I was so stoked when Mira told me about this program that I registered immediately and have since received my membership card and laminated field guide in the mail. We're able to share cutting edge science because CDOC Society is involved in cutting edge science. They've supported 70 projects over the last 20 years, helping get endangered species listed and helping to form the plans to recover endangered species like tufted puffins, like the southern resident killer whale, even pinto abalone. And 40% of those projects that we have funded have had direct conservation impact. You can join the junior sea doctors from anywhere in the world. Even if you don't live near the Salish Sea, it's fun to learn about such a unique ecosystem, and it might inspire you to explore the ecosystems in your own backyard.